Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and this week in Reykjavik, um, I'm recording on a dark, stormy night, which I guess is going to become a reoccurring theme in these intros as winter starts to encroach on Iceland earlier than elsewhere. I guess we don't really have autumn. We skip that one. Um, it is the season where I get to play games uninterrupted because the weather is so gross outside that why would anyone go out anyway? And actually I'm recording on a Thursday night this time around, which is unusual. I normally play games throughout the week or across a couple of weeks leading up to a show. And then I record it on a weekend uh, when I've got lots of space and time. But this week's game is something a little different, something a little special. It's a game that takes a moment to get your head around and um, takes a while to fully understand. I'm not sure if I fully understand it myself, but it's one of those games where after you've played it, your head is so full of, um, of what you've just experienced that number one, you want to talk about it in order to process it. And number two, every day that goes by, um, you lose a little bit of that detail. Like this game specifically is so full and so complex and rich and unusual that I felt that now is the time to talk about it. So I'm recording a little early. Um, the game is Immortality, a game that has attained some instant notoriety, I guess, because it started getting 10 out of 10 scores and went around the internet like wildfire. Partially due to getting a rare 10 out of 10 from Edge magazine, which puts it in the company of some pretty historic games. I think that certainly opened people's eyes to this one. A lot of people's eyes were open to it already because it's by Sam Barlow, who has made a couple good games already. Um, so that's the game that I'm going to talk about today. And I've got a record-breaking 2,000 words of notes. I just noticed that my notepad uh, app was struggling and then checked how many notes there were. And it's 2,000 words. It's like an essay already, and that's just notes. So I'm going to keep the intro quite short today. Um, I will, however, talk about a couple things that have gone down this week. I played a couple new games that came to Game Pass. Um, actually, neither of them hit with me entirely as yet, uh, but it's early days. I played a bit of Moonscars. This is a, a nice-looking gothic 2D pixel hack-and-slash game with a strong Castlevania vibe, but even more gothic. Lots of grayscale, lots of grimy darkness, and a strange magic to it all. Very cool. Um, I played it for about an hour and went through the first section several times. Turns out it's pretty hard, um, pretty beautiful to look at, and with a really interesting uh, kickoff to the story. So it, it contains a bit of platforming, um, it has a nice dash, it's quite zippy to control. Um, you do uh, combat, you do um, heavy and light moves with a block, um, more of a parry, I guess. Um, but it is quite tough. I think it's one of these games that has hopped onto the hard game bandwagon. Um, there's a lot of hard games coming out recently. Um, I played another one this week, Tunic, which I think I'm going to talk about next week, which is much harder than it looks from that little uh, that little bouncy fox character. But Moonscars is another pixel art game that is trading on difficulty. Um, I found that it got hard fast, and I just lost a little patience with it. I think when I'm onboarding into a game, I like to feel that I'm given space for learning the systems and so forth. Moonscars went... Um, from zero to a hundred, I think. Um, I don't particularly like hard games, and if you listen to the show regularly, you'll know that I'm not uh, a soulsy player by nature. 
and tend to shy away from those kind of games. So I've bounced on Moonscars for now, um, but who knows? I might come back to it. You know, it's one of those games that I've kept downloaded on the Xbox and might try again, because as we all know, if you're in the right mood, anything can be amazing. And if you're not, a game that you might really like might just not click with you. But I thought I would flag it up because it's an interesting game to land on Game Pass. It's one that people have had their eyes on for quite a while, I think, mostly because of that beautiful art style, really nice animation, um, and quite a nightmarish sort of mood and vibe to it. And I guess we're actually almost at the start of October when every game's podcast and channel is going to start playing horror games. Um, so maybe Moonscars came out at the right time. You know, it has got a horror vibe to it. I've also been playing more of Dorf Romantic, uh, which is about to drop on Switch, or I think did today as I'm speaking. Um, I'm going to talk about that one next week. I've got a feeling that next week might turn into a roundup episode where I talk about some quite cosy, light indie games that I have notes on, but that perhaps don't merit whole episode feature reviews. But maybe if I group them all together, I can uh, race through a few cool indie games for you next week. Uh, Dorf Romantic has certainly got some charm to it, um, and I'm looking forward to talking about that one. I also started a game called Four Tales. Um, this is a card game that's a little unusual in that the story is told through cards. So you're looking down on a tabletop surface, you have character cards, each character has skill cards, but other cards are dealt onto the table. So if, for example, you run up against some enemies, they appear as a card. If you arrive in a marketplace, that is dealt as a card. So you have these enemies and situations and character cards, like a blacksmith or a wise old man in the tavern and that kind of thing. And if you have skill cards like um, light fingers for pickpocketing and a bow and arrow as an attack, you can drag your cards and drop them onto any given situation. Um, and then the story will unfold with some quite nice voice acting. So it's like a choose your own adventure played through a card mechanic in a really interesting way. So I've just started out on that one. I've played about an hour of it on my Switch OLED on the handheld, and it feels really good, looks really good. Enjoying the voice acting. It feels like a quality production. So I think I'm going to come back to Four Tales in the future for sure. Um, but that's a really nice one. It's really interesting to see a card game that uses some new mechanics, especially narrative mechanics. Not sure I've seen that exact thing before. Maybe the closest I've come is a game like Nowhere Profit, but it doesn't quite tell the story through the card game. It was telling a story while you play a card game. So this one's it's quite unique so far, um, and I'm looking forward to talking about it more. But I think that that's enough intro for today, seeing as this might turn into a long episode. Um, and before I dive into immortality, let me just mention, this is a patron-supported show, so you can go to patreon.com slash gaminginthewild, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener who's decided to throw a few bucks my way and support the podcast. Patrons get access to eight bonus episodes, and I add a new one every couple of months about off-topic things, about music, about travel, um, and there's also a beautiful Discord community that you get an invite to if you become a patron. Um, at the moment, we're talking about art films and left-field movies in a thread, a uh, top fives thread that we keep going, a new top five every week or so. Um, and in honor of immortality, we decided this time to talk about movies, and that thread has really been popping off. I've added a whole bunch of movies to my watch list. If that sounds fun to you, you're welcome to come and join us, get those bonus episodes and support the show at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. And with all of that said, let's move on and talk about our featured game of this episode, Immortality.
So Immortality is a 2022 game by Half Mermaid, um, co-published by Half Mermaid and Netflix. It is made by Sam Barlow, the director, who also made Her Story and Telling Lies, two pretty successful games that use video in their key mechanic and involve scrubbing through footage and uncovering mysteries, a lot like Immortality does, although Immortality takes this to a whole new level. Um, It's out for Windows and Xbox now. It's on Game Pass, and because it's co-published with Netflix, it's coming to Mac and it's coming to iOS and Android for Netflix subscribers. I played this one on the Xbox on the Series X. It ran pretty well. had a couple of crashes, um, a couple of hitches, but for the most part, it was very, very smooth. That was only in the late game. I would say that controller support is important for this game. Um, I think that the vibration is used as a mechanic, and I think that if I was playing that one on a mouse or on, say, an iPad via the Netflix app, I would really miss that vibration. It became quite important to how I played this game, um, and I would consider the vibration to actually be, or haptics, I guess people call them, to be um, pretty central to this game's mechanics. So I would recommend playing on a console, or at the very least with a controller that supports haptics. The music in this game is very striking. It's an orchestral score by Nanita Desai, um, which really, really adds a lot to this game, actually. It, It really... Uh, nails key moments and uh, really gets across the different atmospheres that this game plays with. Um, As it's a film game, there are also lots of actors in this game and they are uniformly brilliant. I will shout out a couple specifically as the episode goes on, but the acting in this is is pretty spectacular, I would say. Um, It's really, really high quality in all respects, in the production, uh, in the UI, in the acting, in the music. This is a very considered quality game uh, from end to end. Um, I think Manon Gage is the the actress who plays uh, Marissa, the, the key character in this game, um, but there are several actors who all deserve shout-outs for their performances in this game and play their characters to perfection. Uh, Metacritic has this one at an 88, uh, which is obviously super high score. It's right up there with some of the best games of the year. Users have it at 7.2, which doesn't surprise me. This game can be a little dense, um, and I can see that there are some off-putting edges to it. Um, If you weren't super invested in the idea and were casually trying this game, I can imagine that a fair few bounced right off it. Um, There is certainly a barrier that you have to break through to really get into this one. Um, And How Long to Beat has the game at 6 hours to do the story, 9 hours for the story and extras, and 16 hours for completionists. Um, I hit the credits in this one after 4 hours, which felt premature. Um, There's so much left to discover, though, that I immediately went back into the game. I played this game in a single sitting, and that included hitting credits after 4 hours after work on a weeknight. So I played it from like 8 through midnight, and then I played a couple more hours into the early hours of the morning because I just could not stop and needed to know more. Um, Some people have said that they've reached credits in one or two hours, um, and they seem to have been confused by this because if you stumble into certain clues, you can finish it quickly. Um, Other people haven't hit credits until 10 plus hours and have ended up feeling like it took them too long. Um, So there are many different routes through this game. I finished it in four. Um, I really considered it finished around six, and I still don't consider it 100%ed. Um, There are still clips that I haven't uncovered that I would really like to, and so I may come back to it for even more. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the end game conditions are here for hitting credits. I'm not sure what I did to trigger the credits, 
But they can be reached at all different uh, periods of your playthrough in the game, I think specifically depending on whether you find certain clues. And the developers describe the game like this. Marissa Marcel was a film star. She made three movies, but none of the movies were ever released. And Marissa Marcel disappeared. An interactive trilogy from Sam Barlow, the creator of Her Story. And my take on this one is a dizzyingly ambitious interactive film game in which the player sifts and scrubs through over 200 clips of unreleased movies, rehearsals and candid footage. Buckle up for some surprises as you piece together the deep, bizarre and twisted mystery of Marissa Marcel. Um, and this game, yeah, this game centres around an actress called Marissa Marcel. Um, she's a beautiful young actress with a partially documented history. And it's partially documented because Marissa went missing. She went off the radar completely after a series of cancelled films and personal tragedies. Um, there's a bit of a, an air of mystery surrounding her. She's semi-celebrity. She's like a cult celebrity, I get the feeling, because none of her films came out. Um, but she did do promo and she was a, a model um, and she has like a talk show appearance to her name um, and so people know who she is and, and I can imagine that there is definitely like a cult following that the what happened to Marissa Marcel uh, cult following and I guess by appearing through all of this this uh, ephemera this film ephemera all of the collected clips of her life and we're engaging in that mystery in an investigative kind of way. Um, and we first meet Marissa age 17 in 1968, when she is cast in a breakthrough role in Ambrosio, um, a religious thriller, I guess you could say. Um, but the film was never released. Her second film was a detective noir called Mitski, uh, which was cancelled mid-production two years later. And then she re-emerged from nowhere in the 90s for a third film called Two of Everything, um, also cancelled mid-production in strange circumstances. So in this game, we're presented with a box set. Um, it's like a collector's piece of every disparate piece of film that is available of Marissa Marcel, um, scavenged from her career and from her life and, you know, presumably from shoeboxes and stuff like that. And someone's pieced it all together. The game is presented as a box set. We get like a a DVD-style intro to it, um, and it's everything that is available from her life and career. And what we have to do as the player is to leaf through, scrub through all of this footage, looking for clues to try and establish what happened to Marissa Marcel. And I think it's worth talking a little bit at the start here um, about the FMV genre, um, because this game and Sam Barlow's games get lumped in by merit of their medium um, with the FMV genre. It's an established genre where you're triggering film clips and making choices in order to uh, guide the story, usually, is how it goes. Um, but this, I think, is something different. Um, I think that this game and Sam Barlow's games generally, um, it's ungenerous to lump them into that genre, which has quite distinctive uh, standards and characteristics. Um, this game does use video, so I can completely understand why it gets tagged with that FMV shorthand, um, but it doesn't feel like it belongs with the rest of those games. Um, I think Sambalo kind of occupies a space of his own in the work that he is making. Um, and I will ex expand on that later, but I do understand why people call them FMV games, but just bear it in mind that if, if you are a fan of FMV games, then you might not find what you're after in this game. I would say think of this as something that really does stand apart and is quite original. Um, it's maybe somewhere between cinema and video games and experimental art, 
more than being a choice-based FMV game of the genre. Um, I've never played anything quite like this one, which I think is is fairly immediately off the bat some high praise. If you know my taste in games, you'll know that I love to experience things that blur boundaries. Um, some of my favorite games, some of my games of the year over the last few years have been things like Kentucky Route Zero, things like Disco Elysium and, uh, you know, The Last of Us Part Two. These are games that seem to um, burst at the seams of, of what video games can be in a way that, that bring in strands from other artistic disciplines. Um, this is an area that I find absolutely fascinating. I love the friction points between genres. I think that when you put different unassociated or tangentially associated media together uh, and just see what happens when you start crossing wires and wiring them together in unusual ways, you end up with some of the most original work, whether it is art, or whether it is video games, whether it is music and VR, things like that. Some of those projects are some of the most interesting projects out there. Um, and I think I put this game in that company, you know, something like the Björk album that was also a VR exhibition, something that crossed genres in a way that we weren't accustomed to, um, but became something new. It was like you were seeing something materialize before your eyes, um, a new vision of what music could be when combined with emerging technology and that sort of thing. Uh, but I'm getting quite off the deep end here already. Uh, let's just say that I've never played anything quite like this game. Um, it's just a really fascinating proposition right from the get-go. I think I should say right here at the start that this is a game that could quite easily be ruined by spoilers. It's a game that contains twists that you are not going to want to know about of various types. Um, and if you are thinking of playing this game, um, I'm going to give a spoiler warning after a while. But for the start, I like to try and talk about games in a way that people that are thinking of playing them or feel interested just to hear about them um, and are considering taking the plunge can listen, can learn about the basics of the game, the gameplay, what the game is all about, and then make their decision with the help of this podcast. Um, and so I'm going to be trying to be very sensitive to spoilers. So for the next section, I'm just going to start talking about some of the basic gameplay of this game. I'm going to leave all of the spoilery stuff to a hard spoiler warning. Um, so listen out for that if you are sensitive to spoilers. So if you've played Her Story or, um, or Telling Lies, I think you will have a basic grip on the kind of game that Sam Barlow makes. This definitely feels like it belongs to the same trajectory as those games, but it also feels like a huge leap forward. Um, he takes it further than he's ever taken it before here. Um, and that gameplay consists of watching video clips, um, sorting them, pausing, rewinding them, manipulating them, and trying to spot clues searching through them in interesting ways. Um, there is a lot of sitting and watching, but it's also pretty active. I think I rarely sat and watched a clip for more than about a minute at a time without pausing it, without clicking on something, uh, without jumping into another clip and then coming back and that kind of thing. So it isn't a passive experience, um, but I would say that you do have to buckle up for 
um, somewhat humdrum gameplay. It's a little bit like sitting in front of an edit suite. If you are someone that works with video at all, um, even on a personal level of just using like a basic video program to try and edit together personal videos, you'll know what it looks like. Um, there are film clips in front of you, you can zip through them, you can bounce from clip to clip and that kind of thing. Um, I like to edit video. I find it quite relaxing when I do it. I've done it a few times for this podcast's YouTube channel, um, and I've quickly found myself falling into the flow and the rhythm of this game. Um, it's very different from other video games where you're controlling things on the screen. Um, here, you are part of the story in a way. It's the way that you're arranging these clips and the way that you're looking through them. And it's very mentally active. Um, you are looking for clues. You're very engaged and activated, much more so, I would say, than a lot of games where you're controlling a sprite um, and doing things that feel that you've done them a hundred times before, like bouncing from platform to platform, whacking buddies and stuff. It's a different kind of thing. It feels like this game opens up a different part of the mind because um, you are remembering and holding in your mind a lot of information about this uh, story, about these characters, um, and the game really does drop you in the deep end, um, so you really do have to be a little bit braced um, for a little mental workout when you're playing this one. You're going to have to remember a lot of names, you're going to have to remember a lot of faces, you're going to have to be uh, noticing the dates on clips to put them into a timeline that exists both in the interface but also in your mind. And I would say that, um, much like Kentucky Route Zero, um, this game is a game that continues after you finish playing it in a way. It's a teaser, it's a puzzler, it's a big meta puzzle where you are holding different fragments of information and you're forming theories about what's going on. And that process will continue throughout the game and after the game and into conversations you have with other people. Um, like, what did you learn? What did you think? What's your theory about this character? What's your theory about someone else? What's your theory about what Marissa was feeling and doing? Why did this work out the way it did? It's that kind of thing. It's a kind of a conversation starter. Um, so that's the kind of game it is. But you start the game with a single starter clip. Um, you, what, you pick a clip from all of the clips in the game, of which there are over 200. You see them all laid out in the first shot. You pick one, the grid empties. It's a little startling. You're like, where'd all the film go? Um, so you have to start from one, but it can be any clip, uh, which is pretty interesting. So you can pick your own jumping in point. Um, the game is incredibly non-linear, and I think everyone will have a very different experience of it. So you take your one clip, it slots into a grid. Um, you can watch that clip, um, and there is a mechanic for discovering more clips. If you've played, um, for example, in Telling Lies, um, the mechanic there was that you could use words as search terms. You could click on a word and be taken to another clip in which that word was used. And so you could kind of wander through the clips uh, searching a particular theme. Here it is different. It's a visual version of that. It's an ingenious mechanic called the match cut mechanic. So if, for example, um, you're looking at a, a shot, you can see the different elements of it. You can see an actor, you can see an actress in the background, you can see a lamp on a table, you can see um, an apple or a flower, um, you can see drapes on the window. All of these things are eye-catching, and so every frame is designed in a way that you can notice several elements of it. 
if you pause and hover over those elements, for example, you hover over the lamp, if you click on the lamp, you're taken to another shot in which there is a lamp. Not necessarily that lamp, but a lamp. Um, and so some of them are very, very broad. For example, there's a window in all of the different movies that you're going to be searching through. Um, there are people wearing jewellery throughout the different movies and in the candid clips. Um, but some things are more specific. For example, if you click on a crucifix, um, the first movie of the trilogy is a religious film, and so you're more likely to get uh, clips from that period. So you can narrow down the kind of clips you might expect to find by focusing in on certain icons. Um, but the clips that you get are random. And so if you are to clip on a flower, um, you may be taken to another clip in the same film, um, or you might be shot straight into a film that happened decades later, or you might be shot into um, a party with all of the film stars drinking and celebrating the wrap of the film with a bouquet on the table. So it could take you to anywhere where there's a flower. Um, and so there is a certain randomness that skips you through Marissa's entire life. Um, and it makes the um, the discovery section of this game both dizzying because you're being shot through different contexts really rapidly at first. Um, and it's pretty disorienting at the start, but also um, it's really fun. You really are being bounced around some incredibly different scenarios and the films have different styles to them that belong to the period in which they were shot. And so you can see different grain uh, from like 90s kind of slick video looking texture to the 1960s to the 1970s film which has like yellow subtitles whereas the others have white because that was a feature of the filmmaking of that time um, if it's personal footage it might be like super eight and crackly um, and the camera work is all dodgy as someone waves the camera around laughing that kind of thing um, so it's pretty fascinating to be shot through all of the clips in this way um, I found the match cut mechanic to be a really interesting way to be um, exploring all of this footage that you're presented with. And you have a certain set of actions available to you as you're watching your clips. You can fast forward and rewind through them at various speeds by using the shoulder buttons if you want to, or by using a stick. If you tap to the right, the, the film will speed up. If you tap to the left, it will slow down, and eventually it will start to rewind. Um, you can move through it frame by frame if you want to. So if there's something that only appears for just a couple frames, you can actually manually um, scrub through the frames just to get a clear view of something that you want to click on. So you really have to have your eyes peeled there. Um, you can also skip to the start and the end of a clip, which is really, really useful um, for reasons that I'll get into. Um, you can mark a clip as a favourite, so you can star it if it's one that you want to come back to. Um, and then you can sort the clips in the grid. You can sort them chronologically, or you can uh, hit one of the shoulder buttons to narrow the selection down to a specific film. So there is the order in which you discover them, there is the order in which they happened, or the date that they are from, um, and then you can narrow it down further to just the one movie. So for example, if you've gathered all of the clips in one film and you want to actually try and understand the plot of the movie, um, then you can do that. You can actually line the clips up and watch them in order. It's really useful to do that sometimes. Um, every new clip that you discover is added to your grid. So for example, if you had that first clip of yours that had a flower, you click on the flower, you're taken to a clip of a wrap party. That wrap party clip will land in your grid. They all have dates and stamps on them, um, and they can be revisited and rewatched. So if you found something that you want to come back to later, then you can. 
Um, so you can really choose how you want to play using this mechanic. Um, some people that I have spoken to or listened to, they they had different play styles. Some people forensically examined each clip as they landed on it. They would go to the start of the clip, watch the whole thing. Um, you can try and focus on one time period, for example, by using the, the candles or the crucifixes that feature so heavily in the film Ambrosio, or by clipping on the, clicking on the face of an actor that only appears in one of the films, you will pretty much be certain that you are going to land in another clip from that era. So there are choices that you can make in your searching that will allow you to um, sort through clips that you, that you want to see to a certain degree. Um, you can also just fly through the footage in a very freeform way, amassing clips into your grid, and then explore them as you see fit. And I definitely went through some phases like that. I explored different ways of playing in this game. There were points where I just um, went nuts and was just clicking on things, clicking on things, and just flying through clips from different eras and just seeing different faces just to see what happened, if you know what I mean. And then later on in the game, there were moments where I focused in more. Um, so there's a lot of... Um, considering the few mechanics that you have available here, there is quite a lot of latitude to find a playstyle that you like or that suits you at any given moment. Um, and the nature of the clips is also quite interesting. It's not all movie footage. Um, sometimes you get a clapboard and someone shouting action or cut at the start and end of a scene. And that'll give you a date on the clapboard and it will tell you that it's from a movie or from a rehearsal or whatever. Sometimes the cameras are rolling before and after the action and cut. So there's little interesting moments there sometimes. Um, but you also get B-roll. You get uh, close-ups of either people or objects. Um, you get all of that extra work that goes into those shots that you're going to see in different kinds of movies. And it's pretty interesting that, you know, none of the films are complete as such. So there aren't complete three complete films for you to see here. Um, some scenes will only be seen as rehearsals. So it's people wearing jeans and stuff, rehearsing in an empty soundstage. Um, sometimes there are table reads with all of the actors sitting around a table just going through the script and the, the director interjecting. Um, and most interestingly, and sometimes the hardest to reach footage, is the offset stuff. So, you know, the talk show appearance that I mentioned of Marissa, or her director, John Durick, who is an important character in the game. Um, candid footage is really interesting, such as like a drunken film rap party, or a cast hangout, or a chemistry test between Marissa and one of her leading men. Um, there are costume fittings, location scouting, private footage of various kinds that def what definitely wasn't intended for public consumption. So you can really stumble into all different kinds of footage here. And that's an interesting aspect of this as well, especially as we're trying to round out not just what happened to Marissa, but but who Marissa was. Um, we get to see different sides of her like when she's performing, when she's, you know, she doesn't think the cameras are on, when she's in her private life, all of that kind of stuff. It's really cool um, range of footage that you get. Um, and so that's how the game goes, really. You start to amass clips. Um, you start to get a vague grasp on the plots of the three movies. Um, there is like a, a period, I would say, of acclimatization where you start to notice costume and you start to notice plot points and characters in the movies you start to learn who the characters are um, and also in marissa's life you know the people that she's around um, her co-stars and that kind of thing you get glimpses of how they feel about each other whether they get along or not and you start to join the dots together and piece together what marissa's life is basically um, and i think at this point it's probably time for a light spoiler warning this is not a heavy spoiler warning. I'm just going to talk about the three different films now that uh, Marissa was in, the three different unreleased films that we are presented with here. No big plot spoilers, no big reveals, no big twist spoilers. 
But if you are planning to play this game, um, this is stuff that you might like to discover yourself. Just depends where your personal level is about spoilers. So I'm just going to give a light spoiler warning here and say that if you are wanting to go into this game completely blind and uh, do all of that investigative work yourself, then you might want to hop off here. Um, I will say that there is more to this game than meets the eye. Um, so if you are even vaguely interested in, in what I've said so far, um, I can't really describe to you how deep this rabbit hole goes. I will just say that I, I absolutely recommend the journey. If you're hopping off now, uh, come back and listen to the rest after you've played. It's the kind of game I think that, that triggers that instinct to want to talk about and to want to hear about. Uh, and if you're hanging around, I'll be right back. is a good soundtrack to this game. I just let that one run a little bit. It's just gorgeous music throughout this whole game. Does such a good job of um, the changing moods, the changing moments in Marissa's life. Um, and she is in three films. Um, none of them are ever released. It's central to the mystery of the game. I'm not going to talk about why they weren't released until after the spoiler break, but I am going to talk about the three films. The first one is called Ambrosio. It's a heavily stylized 1960s European historical religious movie, I guess you could say. It's got an element of shock cinema to it um, because of graphic sex scenes throughout, which I guess would have been more controversial back in those days because it wasn't really the done thing as yet. Um, there are, for example, portrayals of nuns and priests that, that border on kink bait um, and that kind of thing. So it's an interesting European production. Um, it has got a delightfully overacting male lead who plays, plays the monk Ambrosio. Um, he is a tortured monk with an amazing aghast face, aghast at what he's doing and that kind of thing. Um, it's got themes of temptation, uh, biblical themes, imagery, uh, fidelity, lots of crosses, lots of apples, lots of candles, all of which are great to click on to move through this film and into others sometimes. Um, it has a quality of film that looks like it's from that era. Um, and we see the young Marissa in this period. Um, she's excited to be in her first role. She's just 17 years old. Um, and she has a tyrannical Hitchcockian director um, and a dodgy producer as well. Um, there is also a young director of photography that we're intro introduced to at this time called John Durick, who will become a key character in the film. Um, it's, it's like a weird mix, this one. It's like partially a super serious Ingmar Bergman art house uh, religion film, um, you know, part Name of the Rose, um, and then it's also part racy, trashy, Euro flick, which is just titillating by design kind of thing. Um, and there is some amazing imagery in here that relates to the filmmaking of the time. Um, there is literal smoke and literal mirrors. Um, the iconography is all super interesting in the context of both the film and uh, the overall themes of the game. Um, there is a memorable appearance from the devil himself. 
Um, there are some amazing moments with painted backdrops um, and that kind of thing, and like the the old-fashioned effects making um, of that time, which is just so different to what we have now with green screens and graphics and all that stuff. It was all very tactile at that time. And so we see that. And, and I think that looking at the way that the different films are portrayed, because these are portrayals of films and of filmmaking practices to some degree. And I mean, I guess it's no secret that Sam Barlow is a cinephile, um, but we really do see that um, to an unparalleled degree in this film, because it is a film about film, about cinema uh, to some degree. And so we see films being made with the uh, equipment of that time, with the cameras, with the lighting, with the techniques of those times, you know, the kind of fashion that we see offset and that kind of thing. Um, so there are three different distinct periods here, three different distinct periods of history, three different distinct periods of filmmaking. Um, and Ambrosio is the first in that trilogy. Um, the second is a film called Minsky. I think I might have called it Mitski earlier. That's because there is a musician that I really like called Mitski, so I might say Mitski again. If I do, please ignore me. It's Minsky. It's a 1970s film noir murder mystery set in New York City. Um, it's filmed in the 70s, but it's set, I think, in the 60s. Um, it's another controversial film for the time. Um, we see some of the, the crew recurring. Um, this time it's directed by John Jurek, who has moved up from being the director of photography to the director of the film. Um, it's got some sort of swinging 60s stuff going on, uh, themes of sexual liberation, counterculture, um, gender, gender bending, breaking societal norms, all of that kind of stuff, gender fluidity. Um, it happens in the New York art scene. So there is uh, art to click on. There are themes of art, the making of art, why people make art, some conversation around that, themes of inspiration and obsession, creative practice, of muses, of models and that kind of thing. There are also scenes set in the Warhol factory. So it's very different from Ambrosio. It's a real change of gear. Uh, we see the silver inside of the Warhol factory. We see the milieu that he surrounded himself with, trans people, um, cross-dressing people, excess, sex and drugs, all of that kind of thing. Real characters. You know, the factory is famous for some of the characters. Um, there's even like an appearance from Warhol himself um, in like an offset moment. So... Um, I'm fascinated by that period anyway. I'm like fascinated by the Warhol factory and have studied it and have read around it a lot. And so this was catnip for me to see that that was in this film. Um, it's it's a film noir though. So there's also like a cop story going on. There are all of these, you know, scenes of the detectives, the handsome young detective sitting at his desk, sweating over case files. Um, and I guess the, the overriding theme of this one is lawfulness um, and freedom. I guess, um, as art as a res resistance to orthodoxy, which is, you know, also very much in um, uh, Ambrosio um, and also in, in the later film as well. So perhaps the, the, the themes that we find in these films and the themes that we find in the overarching story are kind of starting to click together here. Um, the third film is called Two of Everything. Um, this one is filmed in 1999. So it's a bit of a different era. It's a 1990s high society crime thriller. Um, it's about a Britney-inspired pop star. I mean, I thought she was pretty clearly Britney-inspired, uh, called Maria. Um, there is actually a name check for Britney in the script of this film at some point. And she has a body double called Heather, 
And so in a conceit that we've seen before in films like Dave, when, um, you know, the president has a stand-in who will do public appearances for him sometimes while he does secret president stuff or whatever, it's a little bit like that here. Um, Maria will sometimes send her body double Heather to do appearances on her behalf because they might as well be twins. Um, but she gets propositioned to spend an evening entertaining um, a powerful, influential billionaire for a lot of money, um, and things go completely pear-shaped. Um, there is a bad scene that unfolds. Um, there is some, you know, interplay between the identity of Maria and the identity of her body double. They get mixed up. They get uh, mismatched. They end up going further down that rabbit hole than they ever imagined that they would. Um, it's another kind of schlocky film in a, a way, but it also has like an art house feel to it in another way. It gave me vibes of indecent proposal and like fatal attraction and those kind of racy 90s um, movies that were kind of, you know, serious and sexy, but also totally pulpy. Um, and there are themes in this one of power, of jealousy, of exploitation, but also of duality, of like who you are, who people think you are, who you are behind closed doors. Are you the person that everyone sees or are you not? Um, and as we get through the films, um, I think we are tiptoeing closer and closer to the hard spoiler break. Um, but I've got one little teaser for you, if you've listened this far. And I haven't been able to talk about a lot of what makes this game special as yet. So if it does sound a little pedestrian to you so far, and you're still on the fence about this game, let me just throw in that in 1999, Marissa is back from wherever she's been, but the thing is, like a few decades later, she still looks exactly the same. And I feel like that's about as much as I can give away here before we get into the uh, the real meat of the game and the twists and all of that kind of thing. So I'll do a little end, a, a second little end to the podcast here. I will say that if, if there's any chance at all that you might play this one, please don't listen on. Go and play it, seriously. This is a game that almost more than any other um, really does trade on some of the stuff that lies behind the curtain. Um, I would say that give this game an hour or two to click. Um, there is some stuff that comes up that starts to make the picture come together. And I went through a feeling of being pretty lost and pretty disoriented in this game at first. Um, but it really does go places and it really does start to cohere. Um, there are some spectacular moments in this game, and it, and it really does stick the landing, at least it did in my playthrough. Um, as I said earlier, no two playthroughs will be the same, and so mileage may vary on um, what your initial impressions are and like how fast you get to the mystery and some of the, the major clues and discoveries that are going to change your view on what is happening here. Um, I guess you've, you've garnered by now that this is a heavy recommend from me. There is absolutely no question in my mind this is going to be riding high come game of the year time. Um, so I hope you give it a try. Um, if you are leaving here, then um, good, I guess, because I don't want to spoil this game for anyone. But if you are leaving now, you can always pop back and listen to the post-spoiler break content later. You can find me on Twitter as Gaming in the Wild, and you can find all of the things like Patreon links and that sort of thing, social media, YouTube, Twitch, etc. at GamingInTheWild.com. And if you are sticking with me past this spoiler break, then I'll be right back.
This music, my god, if you have played the game, you will know what this music signifies. This music gives me chills up my spine even now. Listening to it now is creeping me the fuck out. This entire game creeped me the fuck out. Um, and <laughs> if you've played the game, you'll know what I'm gonna say. If you haven't, get out of here. You shouldn't be here. This bit isn't for you. Um, but as we discover, um, this story that we're looking at is not what it appears to be. There is something else going on in this footage. Um, what is going on is a big part of the mystery of this game. It's the big twist in the game. This isn't just about an actress. This is about a whole other cast, a whole other concept, a whole other story, and a much bigger mystery. Um, the footage contains secret footage, um, and it is accessed through a secret mechanic that the player has to discover for themselves. And how people discovered the secret mechanic is pretty interesting to me. Um, since I since I played this game, I have listened to some other people talking about it. I have listened to the short game, who did two entire episodes about this game, an hour-long spoiler-free podcast and an hour-long spoiler-full podcast. Um, and I think just it took those three people to really untangle what the heck was going on in that game. It was Reagan and Shane and Laura uh, were on those episodes. And, and I'm just one person, and so it's been pretty hard work for me trying to piece together um, what was going on in the game. Um, it was wonderful to hear that podcast that they did um, and to hear three people talking it through together and coming to the different theories together and bouncing off each other. Um, and that has somewhat informed my my take on this game, I would say that I got 60% of the way down the path that they got. Um, I've also read a little bit around this game since playing it to, to get different people's takes on it. And there are some wild theories out there about what's going on here. Um, there are people that have got entirely different ideas about what is going on in this game. Um, because the real detective work in this game is done in your own mind, which is just fascinating to me. Like, you could see all of the clips in a row, you could see all of the clips just lined up, including the secret clips, which is not a mechanic that's available in the game, even if it was. Um, there are certain leaps of imagination and deduction and joining the dots that you have to carry out just through thinking about the game, just through noticing uh, cues and keywords and clues that are scattered throughout this footage. Um, but the secret mechanic in this game is absolutely fascinating. Um, I was mind-blown when I discovered it, um, because the footage that I was watching was not the only footage in this game. Um, and I first discovered it, I think, I was scrolling back through a dance scene. Um, and I think that the game is really well-structured to allow you to discover this mechanic. Um, and I'm so grateful that I wasn't spoiled on it. Um, because the match cut system will spit you out often halfway through a clip. Um, and I think I got a little lucky, and I think the reason that I finished it in four hours, or hit credits in four hours, is that my personal strategy when I landed in a new clip was to scroll back in rewind and just see if I was at the start or not. And if someone was writing a guide for this game, I mean, that, that would be like a pretty heavy tip in this game, because I guess some people will just literally use the L3 click to go back to the start and watch the clip. And you have to be winding backwards in order to start seeing strange things appearing in the film. Um, 
yeah, I was watching a dance clip. It was Marissa doing a rehearsal in which she was dancing with abandon and with a big smile on her face with one of her fellow crew members. And I started to see as I was winding back like a flickering white figure dancing over Marissa. Not exactly, but differently. It was a black and white figure, um, a white figure against a black background wearing a ballet um, outfit. And she was twirling and moving with grace. And I almost like, my eyes almost popped out of my head. I was like, what the fuck am I seeing here? Um, so I forwarded it again, rewound it back again. Um, and I could see it even fainter. And I was fumbling around. Um, and I noticed that my controller was rumbling. Um, I noticed that the music, the quality of the music seemed to be shifting. But I didn't get it the first time around. I didn't get into the actual ghost clip. But the trick is, um, and you can only really discover this through experimentation, I think, um, you start to recognise these moments after you see your first couple of ghost images. You're aware that there's something up, but it takes a little experimentation to actually make it happen. Because what you have to do is learn to recognise the cues. If you hover over a clip in the grid and it rumbles, then there's something in that clip. If you're watching that clip and it rumbles and you hear a sound, then if you reverse at that time, if you start to wind back the tape, whether at 25% or 50% or even 100%, um, eventually, after fiddling with the clip and fiddling with the speed at which you're winding it back, um, it seems to vary what speed you have to go at. Sometimes it's frame by frame even. You'll hear a snap. The old footage will vanish and you will have popped into a secret scene. Um, the tape is now playing in reverse, but the clip is playing forwards. It's completely fucking creepy. Um, and the first time that it happened, my jaw hit the fucking floor. Uh, excuse the language. Um, I am freaked out by this game, um, and in a way that I find to be just mesmerizing. The first time that you find clips, it's like passing through the looking glass. It's like seeing a magic trick that you just cannot figure out how it was done. It's like seeing a ghost... Um, and in, in a way, it is like seeing a ghost because the person or people that appear in these clips, um, the main one is, is a character who is credited as the one. We never get their real name. Um, they are played by Carlotta Molin. Um, and this is an absolutely stunning and deeply creepy performance that she delivers as a mysterious figure who is telling an alternate history um, in this footage. It's almost like you feel like you're playing one game. You feel like you're playing like a her story or a telling lies. Um, and then you realize that you're not. You're playing a different game than the one that you thought you were. And it has been hiding in plain sight the whole time. Um, so yeah, after I saw that, um, I'm, I'm going to talk through my discovery here because I think it's interesting. I've, I've heard a couple of people on different shows now describing how they found out about this mechanic. The first clips that they saw, it's something different for everyone. Um, and so everyone is going to have a different entry point into the hidden material, which is just fascinating to me because the order in which you see things can really affect um, your initial impressions of what you're seeing. Um, and the amount of secret clips that you discover or do not discover will absolutely um, shape your ability to put together this story or the story that you do put together. I'm not sure if there is a settled one yet. You know, people are still going around the internet. Reddit is on fire at this point. Um, everyone that's played this game that is critiquing it and podcasting it, they've all got theories. Um, so this game is still, it's not settled, if you know what I mean, in my opinion. 
And so it's pretty interesting to hear how people found it. The first time that I actually snapped into hidden footage was actually a pretty crucial scene. Um, I was watching a clip from the film Ambrosio, and it's a scene in which Marissa, uh, playing her temptress nun role, it comes towards the end of that film, standing naked um, with a hair covering her breasts, holding up a witchy twig, um, and she a smoke covers the screen, and the devil appears, and she makes a deal with the devil. Um, and as I was rewinding it, I saw alternate people standing in the same places. The one, this almost albino actress, with her hair slicked back to her head, um, with quite an impressive um, bone structure. Um, she's got a, a pretty striking set of features. She has very light, clear eyes, um, and a smile that just seems to creep over her face in the most unsettling way. And she was standing there on the screen, and she was facing someone that was wearing that same outfit as the devil, who's wearing a kind of a crown. But it was an almost albino, skinny, creepy-looking, haunted-ass guy standing opposite her. And I was just winding it backwards and forwards in fascination. Um, and then it snapped into the secret scene, um, and I started to get dialogue. And they were almost commentating on the process, on the acting. They were kind of archly... Uh, talking about the scene itself. They were alluding to all kinds of things that I did not understand, and my heart stopped, my blood ran cold. It was absolutely fascinating experience. Um, another one was that dance scene. I went back to the dance scene immediately and was like, oh my god, I think I know how to do this now. Um, and it's a bit of a fumbly process, actually figuring out how to snap into the secret scenes, because it varies. Um, sometimes you can only do it by going frame by frame. Sometimes you have to match the speed of the secret clip and the sec that, that speed can vary. So you really do have to, at first, I mean, I think I went through about a third of this game without realizing that. And I, I didn't know that there was a system. And so I was literally just pretty randomly winding back and forth until accidentally tripping over into the, the secret scene. Um, but when I got into the, the secret scene in the dance, you just get this incredible piece of ballet um, I just sat back in my seat and stared at it. It was literally like seeing a ghost. Um, the third one that I found was perhaps one of the most memorable secret scenes in the game. It is the last scene. It is the last clip in the entire timeline, at least as far as I have discovered, um, where Marissa Marcel is immolated completely. If you snap back into that scene, you see the one who leans, gets closer to you, you snap forward, you go into another secret scene, sometimes they are layered, um, and you can snap back and forwards, and then she appears even closer to you, you rewind the tape again when you hear a strange sound, and then she's right in your face, staring into your eyes, and she says, I see you. Um, I got goosebumps, I almost dropped the joypad, I put it down, I stared at that frame of her staring at me when the, the film finally stopped, and I just said, wow. Um, I think I said, fuck. I think I said, wow. I put down the controller. I was absolutely shook. And I mean, I can count the number of times that something like that has happened to me playing a video game on my fingers. It's stuff like some of the twists in The Last of Us games, that kind of thing. Some of the most famous game uh, moments in video game history. Uh, you know, there were moments in Kentucky Route Zero when that happened for me. Um, maybe different in style, like a musical performance you weren't expecting, like a, a theremin performance or a pop song that just seems to come out of nowhere. 
or like a plot twist. Um, that game is full of those moments too, but they are rare and they are in a very, very thin layer of games at just the top end of what, what games do. You know, we're talking about the best, um, the best of the best here. So after you've discovered that secret mechanic, you start to find these clips everywhere. The footage is absolutely loaded with them. You start to learn how to get into the secret clips more easily the more you practice. There was like a click point for me when I accidentally frame-searched backwards and immediately popped into a clip. So I was like, oh, that must be the secret. It's not. Sometimes you have to go at 25%, sometimes 50 sometimes 100 It's a little different for all of them, but once you know that, you can get into them more easily. Um, and then I did like a second pass through the entire game, all of the footage that I'd found, um, just unearthing every secret clip. And what we discover is that there are others, the others, the others have been present this whole time. We weren't just watching Marissa. She was accompanied by invisible beings throughout this whole thing. Um, there is the one, there is the other one, and there is an entirely separate story being told here. I think it's probably worth saying at this point that this game creeped me out in a way that I have not been creeped out for a very long time um, after playing it. You know, I live alone in a small apartment. It's Iceland, it's pitch dark, the storms outside, and I felt creeped out. I was walking around the house. You know, I'm doing it right now. You know that thing where you search your peripheral vision just because you're creeped out and you don't feel safe. You don't feel alone. The game has been effective in creeping you to fuck out. This game did that for me. Um, in fact, even as I was preparing for this episode today, um, this is the first time that I've ever on my new computer opened up GarageBand and had it refuse to open because of a crash, a spinning wheel of death. And I was like, oh God, I even got creeped out by that. Because the, the, the meta story of this game is um, very much about something alive in the footage that is seeing you. It spells that out pretty clearly in the scene that I've mentioned, in which he looks into your eyes and literally says, I see you. So there is a heavy element of horror in this game. It's probably quite an apt game to be kicking off uh, October with in a way. It's probably the creepiest game I'm going to play this year, I think. Um, but I think it's worth talking through the quality of these shots, because as I've described, like the footage that we get in Ambrosio is old film. Um, the footage that we get in Min Minsky, not Mitsky, Minsky, um, has a slightly different quality to it again. It looks very much of its time. The footage we get in the 90s is different again. The, the footage of the one is different. It's black, monochrome, black and white, highly um, high resolution. It feels like modern footage in a way. Um, you can see the pores of her skin. You can see her irises. Um, and so it has a very different quality to it that makes it stand out from the rest of the the footage that we're looking at. Um, and the actress that plays the one is just incredible to look at. Her face is just amazing. And the, the, the performance that she delivers is spectacular. Um, she sometimes is with a haunted looking guy, as I've described in that devil scene called the other one. Um, and sometimes she replaces characters on the screen in the footage that we're looking at, for example, we'll see the same scene that Marissa was in, but it's the one instead of Marissa wearing Marissa's outfit and saying Marissa's lines. Um, and I think the leap that we're supposed to make here is that the one is actually possessing uh, Marissa in that moment. And as the plot progresses, possessing other people, possessing John Durek, um, people are 
pretty fucking haunted in this film uh, by these ghostly characters. But then there's different ones as well. So as well as those alternate versions of scenes that we thought we knew, um, we get these scenes where the one is in black and white addressing the camera in an almost video diaristic style. But she speaks in poetic non sequiturs, in uh, memories from throughout her lifespan. Um, and so there are very different types of footage here. And it is really like a slap in the face when you first see them. It really is. Um, and so a little bit about that second story, a little bit about the alternate history. Um, the others, I guess, let's just call them the others. We've got the one, we've got the other one. Um, we find out that she is old. She is not human. She is immortal. The title immortality um, refers in part to the fact that there are immortals haunting these people that we've been looking at. And they've lived throughout the centuries. They they inhabit the bodies of people by biting them um, in a, a pretty vampiric way. Um, and this means that they absorb their memories and they absorb their souls. They kind of end the people that they are inhabiting, um, but they also co-mingle with them um, and they kind of overwrite them. But some of the, the person seeps into the body's new owner. Um, and so she has memories from all of the people that she's moved through in her like presumably centuries long life. Um, and eventually, you know, they decide to move on to another body. They leave one behind and shed it. Um, and they carry those memories and attain new ones in their new host. So the big revelation here is that Marissa Marcel has been possessed by a metaphysical presence this whole time. We've never really seen Marissa. We learn that um, the one found Marissa presumably somewhere in the 19 teens, like 1918, 1920, is my guess, somewhere around that, maybe a little bit before. Um, I'm sure that there is a timeline um, that someone has put together somewhere, but that, that was my impression. Um, we find out that they live for a very long time, but that they they lose memories too. They don't remember everything for all time. Um, we see the one inhabiting, I think, three people, but um, and then later more, but three throughout the majority of this timeline. But she does say that she can't remember all their faces. Um, and at some points, we get a glimpse of her inhabiting the body of um, an old black man. At some point, we get the the face of a, of a haggard, haunted-looking woman um, with a sort of witchy vibe to her, with necklaces and a headscarf and um, jet black hair. Um, she talks about waking during the World War, so she's experienced all of the, the 20th century. Um, she talks about the, the 20th century pandemic. Um, I think it was flu. Um, and we discovered that they've been around for longer than that. We discover that they are responsible for creating the Bible story um, of playing the roles of Jesus and Mary in a kind of a, a great artwork which they say they devised to try and elevate humanity, um, an artwork of their own. Um, and with art as a big theme of this, um, the fact that they were making art back at year zero and kickstarted the entire calendar and, and the faith of Christianity, um, seems like maybe that art project went wrong, um, but who really knows? Um, we also learned that this immortal species have been in decline as humanity has spread and that there are only two left that we know of, the one and the other one. Um, death and procreation is different for them. We learn in a scene 
um, in the talk show scene, which was actually my first clip of the whole game. Marissa's talk show appearance was the, the clip that I chose as my starting clip. If you wind that one backward in a few different points, I think I, I got into that one by fiddling around with the static at the end of the clip. We see an entire alternate interview in which the talk show host is actually interviewing the one and he asks her about death he asks her about procreation um, she says that if the bodies die that she's inhabiting she goes into hibernation and wakes up later unless burned which is the only way to kill them um, this made me wonder if if the numbers of this species have dwindled due to the fact that they are haunted witchy fuckers um, and that the humans had witch trials in which people were routinely burned um, so it would not surprise me if they got they got caught up in that or even caused that. Uh, we also find out that they don't procreate, but they rather just continue. Um, she describes it as being like the snow that falls on the mountains and flows into the ocean and evaporates to become rain again. Um, we're also introduced to the other one, her companion, and the only other member of this species that we meet. He is a strange one. He is um, a collaborator. He is her conversational partner and sounding board. He is a tormentor and antagonist and lover and partner. Um, they have a very strained relationship, um, but he's probably the only one who is really in a position to understand her. Um, and so she's kind of stuck with him um, and doesn't always want to be. Um, he also disagrees with her position that there is worth in humanity and that there is worth in art. Um, he's pretty confrontational about that. He mocks her for her interest in the human arts. Um, and he sometimes takes the form of people in her projects you know, they have had clearly like a working relationship going back to their Bible project, but he kind of invades her projects in this antagonistic way by uh, becoming humans that she seems to have become fond of, including her co-stars and things like that. Um, and the one has an amazing obsession with art. She is uh, an incredible character. She talks a lot about art and creation as being at odds with um, order and law and societal norms. She talks about shaking all of that stuff off. She's like a hyper bohemian. Um, she talks about an obsession with the ideas of artistic creation, creative freedom. Um, and she has a kind of an all encompassing hedonistic philosophy, um, just sating her many appetites. And that seems to be part of what she gets out of art. Um, and she seems to kind of ache for meaning. Um, and we see that a lot in films about immortals, you know, that it's melancholy and that it's lonely um, being just in time in, in that extended way. And so, of course, she's looking for meaning in some way, but she's looking for it in the arts, which is just fascinating. And it goes a long way to explaining Marissa's life. You know, Marissa, the beautiful, young, talented Marissa, um, discovering her path and becoming a model, enjoying the gaze and enjoying the celebrity that came with that um, and moving into film, wanting to be a part of the arts, wanting to be a part of the process. Um, so it's no surprise that Marissa's life under her sort of hidden pilot, who was piloting her through life, became this career in movies. And I do want to talk a little bit more about the other one and the drama and tension between them. Um, there is a point in, in the filming of Minsky in which the other one we discover possesses her co-star, someone that she seems very attached to, someone that she's very attracted to, someone who she passed the chemistry test with, with flying colours, which wasn't the case for the poor monk, like they had to work on it a little bit. But this handsome young kind of Robert Redford style actor 
um, who she seems to be really enjoying the journey of filmmaking, getting to know with and has become lovers with, we, we expect. Um, and she absolutely hates that the other one has just invaded her life, has ended this person to whom she was working with and had become quite attached. And this leads her to shoot him. This leads her to hatch a plot to kill the other one um, with the cameras rolling on set in what looks like a tragic accident, but is not. Um, the other one seems incredibly shocked by this. It's like a slap in the face for him. It's like something new in their endless journey through time together. Um, and of course, the actor that he's inhabiting dies to all of the human eyes who thought he was still him. Um, and we find out later that she had that body cremated, effectively murdering the only other existing member of her species. Um, and that's what shut down the film uh, Minsky. So that, that's why that film shut down. There was an onset death that just shuttered the movie. Um, the first film we find out was the, the negatives of it were stolen. And so it was some subterfuge that went on there. Uh, and they later came back into her hands, her hands much later in life. Um, and she eventually, having been goaded into it by the other one who says, you know, people don't know who you are, she reveals her true nature to John Durek, an artist that she looks up to, an artist that she's worked with, who has been treating her as a muse. Um, but he is pretty understandably shook, scared and confused by the fact that this young actress is sitting on top of him in bed and is revealing that she's actually an immortal being. Um, unimpressed by his reaction, she kills him, she bites him, she claims his body and sheds the form of Marissa. This was a pretty fascinating scene. I was, you know, as we see this secret scene, we see Marissa sitting on top of her lover, the director John Jurek. Um, but when we snap into the secret scene, we see that it's actually the one. And they are very physically different. They are very facially different. They have very different energy. They have a very different presence. Um, and so I'm curious as to what John Durick was seeing at that moment. Like, was he seeing, did she reveal herself to him physically as well? Like, was he looking up and seeing Marissa turn into this different character? Or was he seeing Marissa seeing crazy shit? Because if it was just Marissa Marcel telling him that she was immortal, he probably wouldn't believe it, you know? So I'm, I'm a little curious about what the intention was there. Um, if he was actually seeing the one, um, then of course he would be freaking the fuck out. But she decides that he isn't up to snuff and she cl uh, claims him in like a fit of rage. Um, not even rage, like cold rage, I would say. Um, she's lost the other one. She's lost Jurek and now she's lost Marissa too. Um, she lives on for Jurek as decades. She becomes a director. She becomes a successful director. And at that point, I guess she's living her dream as an artist in some way. She's making the films that she wanted Durek to make. She's finally in the driver's seat as an artist, which seems to have been her, her goal to some degree. Like she enjoyed being a muse, but also um, taking the, the steering wheel of the creative process just seems like something that would really appeal to her. Um, and we next come into contact, the next film after the 70s, after the year 1970 or 71, um, is the making of two of everything, the third and final film. And we find out that she's written and directing this story to try and tell her own story. So the plot of that one is about duality. It's about two people sharing one life. And Heather, the body double, is murdered, and Maria ends up living as Heather, loses her stardom, is somehow obscured in, in the mundane life um, of Heather. And I think maybe that's how the one sees herself. It's like she's always inhabiting someone else's life. 
um, and people don't really see her. Um, and so it seems like there is kind of a vanity to her. Uh, she wants to be seen and is frustrated that she can't be. Um, and no one really understands what she's going through. There's no one really for her to talk about it. She's She has murdered the one person that could maybe understand. Um, and so perhaps that's what that film is, is, is her trying to express her tortured state of selfhood, of not being seen, of being obscured by someone else. And the plot gets pretty twisty here. Um, some of this I am relying on things that I've listened to, things that I've read. So I will give another shout out to The Short Game. Um, their conversation definitely illuminated some missing links that I had in my own understanding. Um, so that there are some things that we learn here. We learn that she spontaneously, the one spontaneously brought back Marissa, something that she didn't know she could do. She seems taken aback by this. She has manifested one of her previous forms. And so while she's inhabiting John Jurek, um, she brings back Marissa. And so she's inhabiting two people at once. This seems to shock her. Um, and we also learn that that's not the only way that uh, reincarnation can happen in this story. Uh, we see some footage of one of her co-stars in Two of Everything, an actress called Amy, who kind of plays the, the female villainous lead in this film, watching footage of the scene in which the one uh, killed um, the other one. And the other one is able to return through the screen and inhabit Amy. And so the, the character that we thought was dead and gone is back. Um, and this leads to the end game. Um, it turns out that in the end that the one cannot inhabit two people at once. She starts having spontaneous nosebleeds. She starts collapsing. Marissa starts collapsing. She says she's trying to be too much. She's spread too thin. Um, and as Amy, the other one, helps her put an end to that, um, in, the, in the final scene in the entire timeline, we see Amy, a.k.a. the other one, dousing Marissa in uh, petrol and immolating her entirely, um, which I guess leaves the one in the body of John Jurek, but I, I might have missed a beat here. I get the feeling that she has just ended entirely and that she has moved into the film um, because the discovery that the other one was alive in film and could come out of film again, it seems like the one has finally passed through the screen entirely. She starts off being a model. She becomes an actress. She becomes a muse. She becomes a director. And in the end, she sort of transcends into becoming the art. And so that's my read on, on what these black and white scenes that we see scattered through the thing are, in which the one is uh, talking to the camera directly and addressing us directly, is that she's transcended form and she has crossed through into film. And what we were seeing was her speaking to us from inside the film just just so goddamn creepy and so goddamn effective and just the twist in this game is insane um i've never experienced anything quite like it honestly i'm still shook talking about it now um this is really quite a game
And I guess that you can probably tell by now that I'm pretty in awe of what I experienced playing this game. But I do, in the name of being balanced, want to talk about a couple of frustrations that I had with it too. Um, it's not a perfect game. I would say that the match cut system, whilst ingenious, is somewhat free associative and as a result can be a little imprecise. Like there is a randomness to it. Um, for example, at one point I was searching television sets to try and find modern footage. Sometimes you click on a TV, it takes you to a church window, which is interesting, sure, but it takes me all the way back to Ambrosio. Um, and I just have to back out of the clip and head back into the modern day because I'd done my discovery period with Ambrosio. I was going back to clips I'd seen already. Um, and you can't narrow down your search, really. You're stuck with that randomness. It is possible to select all of the clips from one film in order to view them chronologically, but it would be very helpful if match cut selections, uh, whilst you're in that single film mode, were also restricted to that film. It would really help in in uh, fully exploring all of the films. It would help in late game gameplay when you've kind of seen the story and you're really just trying to shake out the last drops of juice from this story um, by methodically searching for clips that you have not found yet. Um, a little bit like the way that Google lets you use quotation marks or plus symbols to narrow down the results or search for something more. Um, it would be nice if that was present here. Um, but it's not really because if you click on a dress, you'll be taken to any other dress anywhere throughout the entire body of work. It would be really nice to be able to search for a specific dress, like if you were to kind of, I don't know, hold down instead of clicking, then maybe you could look for that specific dress or specific flower or specific earring. Um, so the randomly pulled results um, in late game uh, became a frustration for me, basically. Um, I would have really liked to be able to search specifically. Um, another quality of life addition that would have made a big difference to my my interest in playing the game from now. I think I'm eight eight nine hours of uh, time in this game, and ended up circling the same clips again and again, just looking for anything I had missed. Um, a great feature would be if there was a way of a clip marking that you found everything in it. For example, if you found every piece of secret footage in a clip and you've exhausted the options for finding new clips through clicking on objects in that clip, it would be great if it was just ticked or something, so you wouldn't have to circle through it again. If you could rule it out of future searches, um, it would be amazing because especially due to the way that you find the rewind mechanic, um, you may have watched 50 clips before you find it. And with 200 clips in total, it's it's really impossible to keep track of what you saw before that time. So you don't really know um, what clips you saw way back before you found that. And you, you kind of have to sort through them manually and semi from memory, or at least, at least that's what I had to do. Maybe I wasn't mastering um, all of the things that were at my disposal here, but I found that um, I wished that I could mark clips. I wish that clips automatically were marked. Um, the secret footage doesn't appear in your grid, so you cannot sort that or rewatch that in order. You literally have to go into all of the clips um, and remember um, w in which clip each piece of secret footage lives. That's a slight frustration. I think after credits, it wouldn't do any harm to throw all of those into the grid and allow us to group them and to watch them to try and make sense out of this very really tangled story. Um, and so I would say that I found the late game or the end game 
of um, immortality to be a little frustrating for that reason. Um, I spent like a good hour just circling through clips again and again that I had seen, maybe finding one new thing every 10 minutes or something. Um, but there was it was laborious at that point to actually try and find the last clips that I may have missed. Um, I will also mention that I had a couple of hard crashes, um, a couple of instances where the screen blacked out or the sound dropped out and I had to eventually restart the game um, and restart, yeah, just restart the game. It wasn't a, a console restart, but restarting the software. Um, and there were, that happened a few times in a row. I think in the late game when there's a lot of clips in the grid and you are rapidly clicking through clips, um, the system seemed to struggle to keep up. But for the majority of it, I would say um, it was technically very good, actually. The speed with which it's loading these chunky files um, is unnoticeable. It just feels very natural, the way that you move through clips. But if you start to accelerate through them, like I did towards the end, like I could tell at, at a glance if I'd already seen it, and I would back out of it straight away and go somewhere else. Um, the system did struggle to keep up. I will say again, that's an Xbox Series S that I played on. Um, but those, you know, that's just a few small gripes, um, and they are in no way major. Um, I will finish by saying that the whole second phase of this game is just a startling, shocking, chilling experience in a way that I've rarely felt. I got goosebumps, I got adrenaline rushes, I got creeped out, literally put the joypad down, my jaw literally dropped open several times. Um, it's happened to me watching certain films like dogma movies or extreme cinema or like highly emotional melodrama, um, Dancer in the Dark, Breaking the Waves, Antichrist, Irreversible. These classics of extreme cinema have left me with that, that shattered, um, shocked feeling. Um, maybe only The Last of Us 2 has as a game. Um, but I will say that like games like Kentucky Rezero, which has got just such a vast scope of theatre, literature, set design, sculpture, music, um, inscription, um, that game has this confounding, jaw-dropping meta-narrative with the kind of twisting and turning. But looking at that game now, which for all of its ingenuity, it seems like a kind of a parlour trick compared to the deep themes that are going on here. And yeah, The Last of Us 2 has got this kind of gut-wrenching, emotional, visceral impact and sort of exploration of trauma and violence that really hits raw nerves. This game did the same. Um, and those are, all three of those are games of the year for me over the last three years. Um, and so Immortality goes into that company just by virtue of the impact that it had on me. Um, it's made me think of games in a different way. It's made the, the medium of video games feel bigger. It's like seeing a new medium come into existence playing this game, to be honest. Um, it's a very special experience. Um, it's made me think that, like the one, um, that games as a medium can become something else. That's immortality. So that's the review of Immortality. This is an epic podcast now. We've passed one hour and 20 minutes. It's a long one. It had to be. Um, I hope that my solo rambling review of that game was entertaining to you. Um, if you've listened this far, then well done. Um, I guess you played Immortality as well. I would absolutely love to talk to people about this game. Um, so please do hit me up. You can find me 
on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild. Um, you can join the Patreon Discord at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. There will be a link for that in the description. Um, I would love to hear from you. I would love to talk about this game. I've got a feeling that there will be more conversation to be had about it, um, both at Game of the Year time and just in general, as people start to uncover more clues um, and to collectively figure out what the hell is going on in this game. Uh, to find the missing pieces of the jigsaw, um, this game just seems to invite that kind of long-term project um, and differing theories about what's really going on here based on how far we all got with it. Um, I would like to give one final shout out to The Short Game for their wonderful episodes on this game. I'm going to put a link to their episodes in the description. Um, I came a long way on the path uh, to understanding this game, but they did some of the detective work. Um, and so shout out to them for a great episode. Um, I've also read about this game a lot as well. I've seen Jacob Geller talking about it on the MinMax show. Um, I've looked into some different articles about it too. So the, the work of untangling this game is communal and ongoing, I would say. Um, that's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with another one. It might well be the Indie Roundup. Um, it could be uh, Tunic. It could be Four Tales. Um, it could be Dorf Romantic. It could be a bunch of other games that I'm playing too. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. And bye-bye for now.